physicist. I've been to PNG Heat for a very long time. Do you feel the same as I do? Um, Edward said, talk about your story in Papua New Guinea. So we'd better find out what it looks like and where it is. So thank you, Alan. We'll... Uh... Okay, oh, now this is a gizmo I haven't, but if you look for the red arrow, can you see that? There you go, that saves me pressing a button. There's Papua New Guinea. Thank you, Alan. Keep going. Right, now, this is wonderful. The capital is Port Moresby. But I was in just about the furthest and remotest place, just across a very big river from Daru to where this wobbly little red light is, a place called Barleymore. And many, many rivers stream down from the mountains which run down the middle of the country, making that a very wet, very lagoon-filled area. Thank you, Alan. Is there one more? Aha, uh -huh. same one, but there we go. There's Daru, and there's Barnemore, and there's the Fly River. In fact, all of these outlets are the outlets for yet another river. Thank you. Now, the Gorgodala people, Gorgodala, I know it sounds like crocodile. If that's the best way you can remember it, do so. The Gorgodala people live in the west, and being lagoon people, they travelled everywhere by canoe, and uh, there were no roads, no vehicles, and their houses were on stilts to accommodate the rise and fall of the lagoons. And the gospel came to them in the 1930s, and they were very responsive to it. And by 1968, when I got there, missionary pastor families had gone to 15 other tribes, learnt the language, shared the gospel, and planted churches. Now, that's a huge record when you think how long it's taken us to plant how many churches we've planted in how many years. God certainly used those men's sacrifice. My dear friend, Pastor Seeker, said to me that when he first went to the Huli people, uh, their fear of the spirits was such that when anyone died, and many did, there was no medical help. It was very primitive. Uh, you cut off a digit off your finger, a, a knuckle. And I saw, I shook hands with women when I first went up there in 68. And they just had stumps, not hands. They were the main food providers. They were the ones that dug the gardens and provided the sweet potatoes. And Pastor Seeker said, Helen, as I shared with them that God had made them, God loved them, God loved them in entirety and didn't want them to do that. Gradually, the habit dropped off. You wouldn't find any holy woman these days with her fingers as stumps. Praise God for what he's done with willing men and women back in those days. A bit about me as background. I became a Christian at boarding school at the age of 15. And I was greatly helped and encouraged by a crusader group. It's got a different name now, hasn't it? But I really grew in the Lord. And to you younger people, I want to say, I can never thank God enough for letting me become a Christian at the age of 15. The privilege of coming to know Jesus early on in your life, it's just the best to know that God has got your life in his hands, that he's got a purpose in it for the whole of your life, and that that purpose is good. 
I wouldn't like to think of the mistakes I would have made and had to be retrieved from if he hadn't brought me to know him very early on. I thank God for it. If you don't know Jesus yet and you're sitting in this building this evening, I beg you, ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. And he surely will. So how did I end up right the other side of the world among the Gogodala people? I trained as a primary school teacher and while teaching got a lot of chest infections. The doctor said, you need a warm climate and the door opened to go to Australia where they wanted lots of teachers. It cost me £10 and a job would be provided and my only obligation was I had to stay for two years. So I went to Brisbane, ended up in a very lively church, missionary-minded church, supported lots of missionaries, got involved in lots of activities and at the end of the two years when I was asking the Lord, what next? Along came a missionary couple who said, we want a teacher in Papua New Guinea for a high school at Awaba for one year. So um, the door opened for me to go. I'm so glad I went. And again, I want to speak to younger people here and say a 10-day working holiday in Kenya or India is a great way to start serving God. But... The effects and the blessings of giving a whole year of your life to God are huge. You find that you can't live in your own strength and resources, but God's got enough for you. You get out of your comfort zone, you learn to depend on him, you hear him speak, because you so need him to speak when you're out of your comfort zone. And amazingly, although you don't think he could ever use you, he really does. It's such a faith and obedience strengthener to give a year of your life to serve God somewhere. I just want to say, don't ever put the idea from your head. When conditions are right for you, university or college is over, or if you've got a gap before you go, ask God, do you want me to serve you for a year with a group of people here or overseas? And you'll just find what satisfaction there is in being part of his will. So, at the end of my one year in Papua New Guinea, which I loved, I had choices to make, okay? To return to Australia, I was free to. To return to England, I was free to. Or become a full-time missionary in Papua New Guinea. And God was so gracious to give me that year. Because I didn't actually need a call. It, I just knew, unmistakably, what I would have needed was a call not to come back. That's the call I would have needed. So, um, back I went to England and went through all the preparatory things that you do before you become a full-time missionary, and I'm not going to bore you with the lot. Everybody's story is different. The first thing Jesus did when he called his disciples, uh, or the first thing Jesus did when he began ministry, rather, was to call his disciples. And uh, for every one of them, it was a life-changing experience. They left their nets. They left their tax collecting. They left their homes. They left their families. Their response to his call transformed their lives. His love enabled them to love 
at times very unlovable people. His teaching transformed their thinking. His presence gave them a power to serve and sent them out to make others into disciples. And all of us here tonight have received that same call. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. If you're not sure how to find and hear that call, just get to know Jesus better. Get to know his word better. Learn how to pray on your own with a group of people. Learn how to share what you know of him with other people. Learn how to use ministry opportunities. I'm so grateful to Duncan and Edward for the opportunities that they so often provide for us all to do that. It's much easier for a car to begin a journey when the key is in the ignition and the engine is ticking over than when it's stationary, locked in the garage. And that's one way to hear God's call and to move on with him. It's a huge privilege to be in his will for our lives. I'm going to ask Alan now if he will show us the DVD clip for a few minutes. This was 20 years ago, so you might not think it's me. I wouldn't blame you. Gifted nationals such as Michael are emerging and becoming recognized leaders. He regularly teaches this group of 18 men who meet as a pre-Bible school class. Some of them will go on for further training to become evangelists and pastors. Southwest of Romgane and down in the swampy lagoons of the Fly River Delta live the gentle Gogodala people. There is also the little settlement of Mapordo, home of the Christian Training Center. For the center's principal, Helen Brackenbury, it's a far cry from her native Gloucestershire in the west of England. But this has been her home since 1976. Along with three colleagues, she runs a three-year course for about 40 students who live on campus with their families. Her timeline is a favorite visual aid, which she uses to give students a graphic explanation of the dimension of time. It's a concept some have found difficult to grasp. And I can remember one man in the church one day saying to me in real surprise, yes, but why do we have to pay to go on the boat up to Barleymore? Because when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee in his friend's outboard motor, he didn't have to pay for the petrol. And they don't know that outboard motors... The reason I'm here is to help the church, particularly since their biggest need is for Bible teaching. They're young Christians, but they don't really know what their faith is all about. When I first came here, there were no pastors that had been trained for about 15 years. There'd been no Bible training and no pastors had come out. And uh, the church was desperately needing fresh input. In the past 12 years, we've seen a number of people graduate, and we've seen missionary pastors go out from here, a number who are taking part in Bible translation, a substantial number of pastors, 
youth workers, evangelists, and altogether they've been a tremendous strength for church, and we've seen the church grow because of it, so it's good to have a part in that. These jungle swamps are home to lethal snakes like the taipan and the papuan black. To say nothing of the leeches, which are always on the lookout for a nice piece of flesh, but Helen takes it all in her stride and actually finds life here very fulfilling. I guess for every Christian, the, the reason why we find satisfaction in being where we are is because we're sure we're in the Lord's will and we know we're doing what he wants us to do. I'm sure nobody would willingly bury themselves here, but if you're here because the Lord's put you here and you feel confident of that, then you can cope with it. It's in the swamps that the staple food of the Gogodala is found. It's sago, and a lot of hard work is required to extract it from the sago palm. The men fell the trees, but the women have the back-breaking task of chipping away at the trunk to obtain the pith. It's then soaked in water and squeezed out like a sponge until it's almost dry. The residue is discarded and may be dried out and used for fuel. What remains is the squeezed out liquid which is like wet corn flour, almost pure carbohydrate. Since the sago doesn't keep for very long, the women have to repeat this arduous process every three weeks, while the men go off on evangelistic trips. Then it's back to three more weeks of intensive study until a fresh supply of sago is required. One special delicacy is the sago grub, which grows just under the bark of the sago palm. It's like a giant maggot. And we were assured, with a bit of roasting, it's quite delicious. However, we couldn't quite summon up the nerve to try it. Back at Mapordo, each family cooks its own sago. It looks unappetizing to our eyes and has very little flavor, but with fresh vegetables and herbs, we found it quite palatable. Once a week, some of the students from the training centre paddle half a mile downriver to a village where there is a government school. It's a good opportunity for them to gain more classroom experience 
as they are invited to teach the Christian faith to a variety of age groups. Some of them may be a bit nervous at first, but they soon gain confidence and their ability increases with each visit. At the end of their training, they will be well equipped to take up leadership roles back in their home churches. A mile or so downriver in a rented houseboat, American missionary Tim Schlater is involved in a translation program for the Tarbo people. It's an ambitious project and one which involves a graduate from the Christian Training Center. The biggest help comes from a man named Manale, who graduated 12 years ago from CTC. And when I came, he was very, very supportive, very excited about the work that we wanted to do. And I could see that God had selected him to help us with this task. I think it will take about 15 to 20 years. We're prepared to be here at least that long. And after that time, there may be other aspects of church ministry and work that we would stay on to complete. The work of translating scripture is a long, painstaking process. But with the help of the students and a willing congregation, Tim and Manali can get some measure of the effectiveness of their work. Every so often the students will come and preach using the latest translation notes. Tim's willingness to give up 20 years of his life to bury himself here in the back of beyond is a tremendous challenge to our own often half-hearted commitment. And all of this so that a relatively small tribe can have the gospel in their own language. Maporto wouldn't be the same without Helen and her canoe, the Helen B. With a powerful Yamaha outboard and Jimmy the driver, she has the fastest boat on the river. I sometimes feel incredibly privileged that I'm away from the rat race, that I'm away from um, the speed of life and the demands and the pressures that there are in England. We're safe, life moves at a very leisurely pace and sort of reasonably well organised. Anyhow, the other side of the coin is, it's a very lonely life. I'm a sociable person, I enjoy companionship. There have been times when I've lived for seven months on my own here at Napordal, and I've been the only expatriate person, certainly the only English-speaking person, and I've gone, gone, uh, gone quite odd, I think, with loneliness. <laughs> Two hours downriver from Napordal is Barlymore, surrounded by lazy lagoons and a maze of waterways. The humidity is something to be experienced. The mission has a large station here with a nursing school and hospital. It's also the center for another translation project for the Gogodala people. Helen regularly comes down in her canoe to check the latest work with Pastor Denier. He's regarded by many as the Apostle Paul of the Gogodala and held in great esteem. Once again, the plodding, methodical work of translation needs perseverance, as every word has to be carefully chosen so as to convey accurately the original meaning. Pastor Denaya was converted in 1945 and later became the Evangelical Church of Papua's first president, retiring in 1983. He told us what life was like before the gospel came. 
Life was very hard for us Gagadala. We all lived in a village, in one long house. The men lived separately from the women and children, so there was no family life. Living in lagoon and river country, our racing canoes were very important to us. Each clan had their own, marked by an original carving on the prow. They were also associated with spirit worship and used in ceremonies. We worshipped a spirit called Ida, and sometimes we would dance and sing to it until we were totally exhausted. There was a lot of death in our tribe, and many lovely young men and women died of sickness or tribal fighting. We were constantly afraid of the spirits of the dead. But the gospel came, and our lives were changed from the inside. We no longer live in fear of spirits. We live in our own houses with our families, and we look after our gardens and fish with no fear of being attacked and killed. God's word is indeed powerful. Sunday morning back at Mapordo, and a special event is taking place. It's a baptismal service. This, more than anything else, encapsulates the meaning of mission as those who have recently found faith in Christ are prepared to declare it publicly. In this culture, it's impossible to keep your faith a secret even if you wanted to. What's happening here is the fruit of work which has gone on faithfully year after year. There are no white faces present. They are all behind the scenes as servants, helping, training, advising, so that one day they can leave and the national church carry on. But that day is not yet. As Helen says, there is still much that we can do. The sort of support that we really value from the home churches is to send out Bible teachers. Because um, Gogodala folk haven't got to the stage where they can really expand the word of God deeply to their own people. After all, they've only had bits and pieces of the Old Testament themselves for the three years, and they've only had their New Testament for seven years. And how can they produce Bible teachers who are able to build the church up and really put a good input? And I'd love to see mature Bible teachers come out here and give a few years of their lives put, putting teaching into the church, because that's going to stand for years to come. And not only Bible teachers, but church planters, youth workers, evangelists, men and women who are prepared to give themselves to long-term missionary work, to come and serve the evangelical church of Papua New Guinea. Jesus made it clear, mission is not an option, it's a divine imperative. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm actually going to give you an apology. Um, it's my feet. Now, I never went anywhere without willy boots. I didn't like snakes and thorns and leeches. So you never saw me without willy boots, excuse me. And then along comes this photographer, you see, and it rains for five days, and he wants to get a picture of Sega making. So I send my house girl across the river and say, Start off, dear, and stop when you want a bit of a break. We'll arrive eventually. 
Then the rain stops and everyone says, this is the moment. So we all hop in a canoe and paddle over. And how was I to know he was going to photograph my feet? So uh, do not think I'm a heroine. I am not. Uh, the other thing is Jimmy the driver. Just want to tell you a bit about Jimmy. Um, I couldn't handle the motor, but Jimmy could. And as soon as I employed him, he went down to the local logging company and got a hard hat and changed his name to James. <laughs> but what, what I'm really pleased to tell you is that he's now a fully trained, ordained pastor ministering in a village church. And about languages, we saw the Tarbor language, Tim Schlatter and Manale working on it just a few miles downriver from us. Um, as I excuse me, prepared for this afternoon, um, I thought to myself, I'm sure there used to be 780 languages in Papua New Guinea, but I'd better just check that it wasn't 480, because I'm a bit enumerate. So I googled it, and it's actually, there are 850. <laughs> so, there you go. <clears throat> this is the, the one I've spat in, I hope. <laughs> I want to tell you about my first job in Papua New Guinea after returning from England. At that stage in Papua New Guinea's history, there weren't many high schools, and um, Awaba High School was the only Christian high school. And we had complete freedom to share the good news of the Lord Jesus. We taught in English, thank goodness, it was a boarding school on an island in the swamp you've seen of. Massive swamp, very flat, very open, very hot, very mosquito-y. The 500 students came from all over the country. They arrived by a small plane in February and they didn't go anywhere until the end of November when they were sent home. Neither did the teachers go anywhere. No weekends off, no holidays, no breaks. And I only got back to England every fourth year. There was also a teacher's college and a primary school and some small Gogadala villages, which you got to by paddling a dugout canoe. No towns or shops, no roads. I had many satisfying years in that job, but I'd like to tell you about the challenges before I tell you about the satisfactions. We lived through a cyclone. Well, we lived through many, but we lived through one particularly bad one. Gorgor Dala means the men who come from where the Gorgors come from, i.e. the cyclones, the weather. The weather that hits Papua New Guinea sweeps across from that end of the country. Now, I was responsible for the girls' dormitory, and the roofing iron was being ripped off the roofs of the buildings, and I could see a group of girls were going to get their heads cut off. And no matter how I shouted and screamed, they weren't going to hear me. The wind whipped our voices away. God protected them. I'm so grateful. Cut the tops off the mango trees and the pawpaw trees, but not the girls, which was wonderful. We lived through a bad drought. We, to feed the students, we depended on the fish and the sago, and the pineapples and the bananas which the local market sold, but the market dried up, the local people were hungry, the water supplies dried up. Feeding 500 hungry teenagers became a matter for daily prayer and trust. 
And just when we were on the verge, very reluctantly, of thinking we were going to have to send them home, which would have disrupted their education for the whole year, and possibly forever, because some of them wouldn't have got back, God kept us going and then provided by rain and food and fish. Thank you, God. You know, you read stories about George Muller doing it, but suddenly you're in the position where you have to do it yourself. And God's faithful. We experienced a revival when the Holy Spirit moved in a big way after a visit by an African evangelist. I think we, the teachers, especially the expat teachers, didn't handle it very well at all. We were trying to be responsible for keeping a government school going. But the... Uh, For many days, in fact for nearly a fortnight looking back, the Papuan staff and students, they spent hours worshipping and praising God, dealing with sin, helping each other, sorting things out. It was powerful. But they gave up coming to classes, they gave up going to get regular meals, they gave up going to the dormitories at night and they just snatched sleep whenever they felt they needed it. And uh, sin was dealt with in a very powerful way. Whole wheelbarrows full of stolen school stuff was brought back to the staff room. <laughs> Pots from the kitchen, library books, axes, spades. But the most unexpected of all, and the one that comes to my mind quickest, was a bit of dried fur which this particular student used, he used to have it in his back pocket on a Sunday, and he'd pull it out and unroll it and sit on it to stop his trouser seat from getting dirty on the chapel floor. He went to the headmaster's house and asked to speak to seven-year-old Ruth, and he gave her the fur and he said, sorry, I stole your cat. <laughs> Another challenge for me was snakes and rats and bats used to come into our rather flimsy house and the outside toilet, not to mention the wasps halfway down the long drop. You needed to avoid hitting them. (laughs) Or move quickly if you did. But coming from England, I wasn't used to snakes and things. My Aussie colleagues dealt with that much better than I did. Trying to kill a python with a bush knife is like trying to kill a Michelin rubber tire. But I've discovered bats can be felled by nifty use of a tennis racket. Now, another difficulty for me was that I was one of the few single teachers who stayed put. Others came and went, and they were put to live with me. In 11 years, nine different people, many different cultures, Filipino, Swedish, Papuan, Australian, New Zealand. I began to find it very hard to make constant adjustments. The married missionaries didn't have to do it. And it aggravated my longing to get married and to have a home of my own. And singleness became a challenge that I really needed the Lord's help to deal with. The battle needed fighting and winning, or I'd have given up and come home. Now, two things were a great help to me. 
One was the certainty that in God's sight, I was a complete person. I was whole and loved by him. God and I were not waiting for Mr. Wright to come along to realize my full potential. It was already there in the Lord Jesus. Now, sometimes my longings overcame this bit of wisdom, I must admit. But basically, I absolutely knew that God knew best what was right for me, and he wasn't making a mistake. Secondly, eventually I realized that I had it much, much easier than my married friends when it came to getting into a ministry, learning the language, and learning the culture, and getting close to Gobadala people. My married friends had family life and children to bring up and all the rest of it, and their frustrations were great, but some of them never ever learnt the language in spite of struggling with it. So for me, for you, the Lord knows best. Okay, enough of the challenges. Now for the satisfactions of that first job. I taught English and religious education to young men and women who just soaked it up. They were so responsive, so grateful for an education. None of us knew it at the time. But we do now that we had the privilege of teaching and sharing Jesus with the one who would be the first Governor General of Papua New Guinea, the one who was the first ambassador to the USA, the first paediatric doctor in the country. That was Pastor Danaya, who you saw, his son, Tawa. The first lawyer in the country. The first woman headmistress in the country. I could go on with that list. Many of them had become believers, and they had a hugely beneficial role as leaders when the country became independent in 1975. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. And we never know how far that act of obedience will reach. Now, after about 10 years, I really wanted to get out of teaching and get into church work, particularly women's ministry. But the door kept closing. I suppose that was the time when I most needed perseverance in keeping going in Papua New Guinea. It would have been very easy to get brassed off and return home. But after a couple more years, the door opened, and I moved out of school and spent a few months living in a Gogodala village with a Gogodala family. I could spend a whole evening telling you about that, but I won't. It was to learn the language. It was very basic and quite uncomfortable and exceedingly unhygienic, but very good to be there with them. I'm full of respect for Gorgo women. Their lives are hard. They carry the whole burden of providing food and finances and stability for their families. Gogodala men, on the whole, are very feckless and irresponsible. <laughs> the women also had an amazing hunger to learn scripture and teach it to their kids. And they'd learn 36 verses off and then stand up and spout it in a women's meeting. For me, it was a huge privilege to provide them 
with teaching material in their language, in book form, most of which I believe is still being used. But my freedom from the classroom didn't last long, regrettably. There was a sudden need at the Christian Training Centre. You saw the DVD, and I transferred to Mapodo to help young pastors in training understand the basics of the Bible. And at first, all the teaching was done in Gogodala. I'll tell you what, my language skills improved ever so fast. Do you, you try teaching to lectures on the Bible in a language you've really just started to learn. By the way, can I just go back to that business about learning the language in uh, PC Village? The person they appointed to teach me didn't have a clue what to do. He arrived with every book he owned, which wasn't many, under his wing, and a black T-shirt with the word mafia across the chest. <laughs> and I thought, oh, where do we go from here? Well, thankfully, I knew the basic principles of teaching English as a second language, so I wrote my own lesson plans and taught him to teach me. And, and with God's help, it must have worked. It must have worked. Anyhow... That's language for you. So I did improve during those years when only Gogodala was taught at Mapodal. And as I mentioned in the clip, I only had seven months. I had seven months when I was the only white skin and the only, um, only one who spoke English. And I'd like to change that clip because I noticed I said I had to learn to handle loneliness. Actually, I didn't. I had to learn to handle aloneness which is something quite different, actually. And um, thankfully, other missionaries soon came, joined the team, especially Wendy Williams, who became a dear friend, and we shared a home for about 11 years. <coughs> and eventually, a new course for English-speaking students was begun, and teaching got a lot easier for me. But I did love that job all the years I was there, during the Gorgodala-only years, I discovered that trying to teach, say, the book of Genesis in Gorgodala to Gorgodalas who didn't understand English and who didn't have the book of Genesis in Gorgodala but only had it in English was both impossible and frustrating. And it was at that point I got involved in the Old Testament translation and you saw a bit of that. So when the students went off after three weeks to get to replenish their food, I travelled up the river and joined some Gogodala translators. And we had a lot of help from the Bible Society who provided expert people to teach them how to translate and the local people. And back at Mapodo, I started a small checking group. And uh, I tell you what, I am gobsmacked at the power of God's word to change people, even if it's only been translated for half an hour and written in chalk on a blackboard. Because I clearly remember the time Jimmy, Pastor Jimmy's, James's of the hard hat, you know, Father Mawagi, just sort of got a bit lost in a bit of translation we'd just done from Genesis. That was where Isaac's shepherds had dug wells so that Isaac's sheep could have something to drink and the Midianites got very cross and at night time came along put rubble and stones in the wells. And Mawagi looked at this. 
paragraph. And he sort of disappeared for five minutes. And when he came back, he said, what were you thinking about? He said, you know, we Gogodalas are just like that. And God doesn't like it. I have a, ooh, wow. This is just wonderful. There's power in God's word. My involvement with Old Testament translation carried on when I returned to England in 1994. I wasn't doing the translating. My brief, or they'd been asked by the church leaders to finish off everything that's been started. So they worked on it, and I used to go back to Papua New Guinea regularly with the love and support of this wonderful church. And the Gogodala people trusted me to say, we haven't got that quite right. In fact, we need to start thinking about this passage again. So it was a partnership between them and me. And I also wrote some easy study books so that they could understand 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, Joshua and all the other books that were coming into fruition and being printed. Um, sadly, when I returned to England in the early 2000s, the translation team fell apart. A lot of division, corruption, bad leadership, and they haven't done any more on the Old Testament, which makes me feel very sad. However, the good thing is that the people there now, many more of them speak English, and uh, if, they can get hold, if they can get hold of an English Bible, they can read the Old Testament for themselves. And apparently, there is a great hunger for Bibles and Christian books. Well, there were <clears throat> many more opportunities at Mapoda. Lists of them, but I'm only going to tell you about one. I was trained as an infant teacher, which meant that I learned how to teach infants how to read phonics in my day. And, uh, well, didn't look very likely I'd ever get that training used. But you know, God uses everything in our lives if we give it to him. Anyhow, these... Young, enthusiastic, trainee pastors brought along very reluctant, illiterate wives who didn't want to be educated and trained and who couldn't read. So I took it on me to teach them how to read using the principles of what you do in primary school, you know, infant school. And the joy, the joy of seeing them learn to read. You see, they would have gone out as pastor's wives and been despised by all the other women in the village because of their illiteracy, when they discovered they could read for themselves. My word, there were lots of satisfactions in that. In a way, it was easier for me to obey the call of Jesus to make disciples when I was in Papua New Guinea than it is in Croft Home in Morton Marsh, if I'm honest. But the call hasn't changed. And his call comes to all of us, old and young, and after being given this opportunity, Edward, to look back over these Papua New Guinea years, I feel I need to say sorry to the Lord Jesus for my lukewarmness and to renew my commitment to him. And as for you, he may call some of you to leave your family, your security, everything familiar, but he also promises to be with you, to give you the power and to be with you to the end. We have to be ready. When we sing songs such as I give you my heart, I give you my life to live for you alone, when we sing that, he might take us at our word. Tonight, is he asking you 
to commit yourself to a fuller willingness to follow him wherever he may lead you, be it here or overseas. Or may God bless you in your walk with him.